We have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Exodus chapter 30. So in Exodus chapter 29, we kind of jammed through it last week. So I want to um, back up just a little bit and catch a little bit of the highlights as we go through in uh, in first or in uh, Exodus verse chapter 29. So actually, let's look at 29 to start. Now, I, I want to, in the verse that God gave me for Sunday... As I was coming to church, it was the verse of the day, and um, it, it happened again today. And uh, so there's something in this verse that God wants us to know and believe. And First um, Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9, where we are, it says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and and in there there's several titles and promises for us of God's people and, and one of them really fits with where we are in in Exodus but in second Peter in chapter 2 verse 9 I see some of you still trying to find it it says you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood because we've been studying the priesthood on, on in, Gen, in Exodus and, and the garments last week and the way the priests wore them and the different um, adventures that, that the priests would have in taking care of the tabernacle or the house of God. And yet, as we remind, you know, it'd be cool, like, you, you think to yourself, hey, I would like to be one of those priests, man, and when the, get to wear that fancy thing and, and the... the uh, barbecue lambs every day and the sweet smelling aroma of the incense and the things that were happening there. And, and yet God's called us as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. My wife was uh, um, invited to, to pray with a group of uh, people that were praying and they, the people that pray like this when they pray. And um, the guy leading the prayer, he ended the prayer by saying, According to the order of Melchizedek, of which I am a member, the priesthood, the royal priesthood of Melchizedek, of which I am a member, amen. And that's, that was, he gave himself a title of, of being a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We, we know biblically that's blasphemy because there's only one priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, um, but... Technically, if, if we wanted to maybe join that class and some of those things, you could say, but you who or I am a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, which I am a member, I'm his own special people. And you would be accurate in calling yourself a member of the royal priesthood, chosen generation and a special people of God's people. And so um, this is the, the priesthood that, that we've been studying. So back to Exodus. Actually, don't go back to Exodus yet. Go to um, first or to John, the Gospel of John, in chapter one. Gospel of John, chapter one, in verse fourteen, and it says, according to Jesus. Now, now you guys know because I've I've, I've taught this a bunch, so maybe somebody hasn't heard it yet. So you'll you'll get it today. And, and those of you that, that have been real faithful on Wednesday nights, you've already heard me say it like 500 times, so I apologize. But it's very true. The, the Old Testament, in so many places, in so many ways, especially where we are right now, is a picture of Jesus. After Jesus rose again from the grave, 
And before he yet ascended to heaven, where the apostles watched Jesus go into heaven, he met two guys on a road, and it's called the road to Emmaus, recorded for us at the end of Luke's gospel. And Jesus starts talking with these two guys on the road to to Emmaus, and, and he's like, hey, what's wrong? Why are you guys sad? And they're like, what are you, some kind of stranger in Jerusalem? Do you not know the things that have taken place? And he said, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, we had hoped that he, that he would be the Messiah, that he would be the Savior, that he would um, change Israel and, and, and basically overthrow Rome. And, and then it says that, that Jesus basically revealed himself to them, and they realized that it was Jesus. And then it says, beginning with, beginning with who? Beginning with Moses, Jesus began to expound to them all the things concerning him. And so how many of us, and we always say, man, that's one sermon that I wish we had the CD for. I wish we had on tape because that we just pause on that word expound. Jesus took these two guys on the road to Emmaus and beginning at Moses, he began to expound. And that's what we try to do in here. We try to go back at Moses. And, and as we find places where we see Jesus woven into the text, we try to expound. Now, obviously, Jesus's sermon would have... Um, been been very good to get a hold of and better anything you're ever going to hear here but that that's the idea and that's where it comes from and that's what makes it um absolutely biblical that jesus is all through the bible the bible is 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 god's word and 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 we're going to see jesus on every page we're going to see jesus in every book of the bible we're going to see jesus and especially this idea of tabernacle it's two things the tabernacle I'll throw the picture up in a minute so you can get your visual. We've been throwing it up every week. Um, The picture of the tabernacle that we've been studying. uh, And again, um, the tabernacle is this tent of meeting where God would meet with his people. And it was made to take down and and rebuild and take down and move and put it back up and take down and move and put it back up. But this tabernacle is a picture of two things. Number one, it's a picture of Jesus. It's a foreshadowing and a type of Jesus all the way through the symbolism of the the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to build. And second, it's a picture of things in heaven. It tells us in uh, multiple places in the New Testament. That's an artist's rendition of what we're talking about with the outer um, courts there that were tented off, the areas that, that would come in. The brazen altar, which is that thing with the water in it, there at the very um, beginning, we'll talk about that today. That'll come up in the directions that God gives Moses. As you go on in to the actual tent, there's two places. The tent is divided into the holy place, which is in the front, and then the very back little section, the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant would have dwelt. And so that's a look in at the just the tent, tent itself. The, the tents obviously are cut in half so you can see inside. They would have went all the way across. You see the Ark of the Covenant there in the back, back in the Holy of Holies. The altar of incense, the, um, the menorah, and then the table of showbread on the other side. And, and those are the things that God prescribed in this, in this tent that, that gave to Moses. Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and as you guys know, he was up there for 40 days as God is going to give him instructions for the tabernacle, give him the Ten Commandments. God's going to write on the Ten Commandments with his hand. We're going to get to the next chapter as we, after, next week, we'll get to Moses coming off of the mountain with the Ten Commandments. 
and finding the, the children of Israel dancing nakedly around a golden calf to the song Born to be Wild. So that's next week. So um, in this, and, and again, and everything that we see as we go through this is a picture of Jesus. So in John, he had lots of time to find it now. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and, and tabernacled among us. The newer translations change the word and use the word dwelt. It means the same exact thing. Tabernacle is to dwell. And the Lord became flesh, or the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And that, that idea there that Jesus tabernacled among us is, is exactly the heart of God that we unpacked last week. That God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we see the same all the way through. And so um, this tabernacle in Revelation, it tells us that, that it's, a, it's also a picture of things in heaven tells us in Revelation. So we have those two things with the tabernacle. A picture of Jesus and a picture of heaven. So we go on to uh, 29. I'm just going to catch some highlights through here. Um, Let's look at 29, verse 1. And this is what you shall do to them. Hollow for them. To hollow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish. And unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil. And unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basin and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meetings. And you shall wash them there with water. Then you shall take the garments... Put on the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And so we have these priests here and the priests were to be ordained um, in these garments that God laid out, these priestly garments. And, and, and as we're going to get into, we haven't yet, but as we get into, one of the things that was very necessary was that the priests were, were ceremonially and, and physically and spiritually cleansed before they performed the duties unto the Lord. And, and that's what we'll see that wash basin today. We'll see that altar um, the, of the wash basin as it goes in today. And all of these rituals that God would put the priests through um, to, to go in and perform the duties unto the Lord, but to have their hearts clean. We see um, in the Bible, garments are a sign of righteousness. It's a biblical idiom that's used throughout the scriptures to talk about your righteousness. So um, I'll give you a couple. You can make notes. You can flip around with me if you want, or you can just stay where you are and I'll be back. But in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, the most famous one, it says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. And they, though they are like crimson, they shall be as wool. And then in um, Daniel, this doesn't sound right. 7, 9. Let me find it. says I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was sealed his garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool and his throne was a fiery flame in its wheel of burning fire 
In Matthew chapter 28, in verse number 3, it says, His countenance was like lightning, and His clothing as white as snow. His garments were white as snow. And then again, we go back and we have the promise from Isaiah that He's going to make our garments white as snow, that, that the blood of Jesus Christ makes us white as snow. And then we see in Isaiah chapter 64, in verse number 6, this idea. So basically, um, I'll read this last scripture and I'll try to unpack it a little bit. It says, but we are all like an unclean thing and our righteousness are like filthy rags. We are a fa- we are we all fade as a leaf with our iniquities like wind he has taken away. So in Isaiah, he tells us that our our righteousness, the best that we can do is is like filthy rags. 64 one. So the the word that is translated in our modern translation, filthy rags, technically in the Hebrew, and you guys know this, but it does add a little bit of emphasis, and it's true. It's the term, the Hebrew term is menstrual rags. So the idea that, that we have a garment that we're gonna stand before Jesus one day. And it's 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 probably actually physical and and actual as, as much as it is an an idiom and ceremonial that basically when whenever we see Jesus he's what right? we read the description of Jesus um, in Matthew twenty eight and other places that his garments were as what white as snow that that's a description of Jesus that we saw multiple times his garments were white as snow garments white as snow and then we see Isaiah promising from the Messiah that that though our skin our sins are as scarlet red that he will make us white as snow and and then we get this this picture throughout the Bible and revelation as well that when we stand before him we're standing in these garments and, and, and for those who stand in um, their own self-righteousness apart from the forgiveness of Jesus and the blood of Jesus Christ washing our garments as white as snow and washing away our sins, our best effort. If you take somebody who was absolutely perfect their entire life and, and they have to go and stand before Jesus and, and the, 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 the test whether you get to go into heaven or not is, is going to be based on how you appear and what kind of robe and what kind of clothing you appear before Jesus on Judgment Day. And, and the Bible says for somebody who does everything almost perfectly and in their very best effort, they, they will stand before Jesus on that day and He's going to base them on this garment and they'll be standing there and they'll be clothed in, men, in menstrual rags. So take a bunch of dirty menstrual rags and the best you can, sew them together and patch them on one on your forehead and around and, and, and try to make a really fancy, pretty dress and then go to a wedding, go to a party and knock on the door and stand in front and say, hey, can I come in and party with you guys? Now, these people are definitely not going to let you in. And nonetheless, that's, that's a picture that the word gives for, for garments and then the best that we can do. And again, it's, it's a matter of, of the blood of Jesus Christ washing and cleansing us. And when the blood of Jesus Christ washes and cleanses us, God gives us a new garment, a new, um, a new life and um, new clothes. And we get rid of those menstrual rags and we get rid of our best and we're made white as snow. And that's the, the idea or the picture, part of the idea and the picture behind the linen ephods and the, and the clothing that, that they would wear in the Old Testament in the these ceremonies. And we, we talked about last week, we, un, we laid it out that they wore blue, that the color of the priests were actually blue and their garments, the outer garments were blue with the breastplate and all that. So 
That brings us to verse number 10. In, in verse number 10, just a couple highlights in 29. We're going to get on and we're going to cover 30 and 31. And we're going to do that all by 8.15. I'm not kidding. Um, go ahead. Uh-oh, somebody's crying. Okay, so it says, You shall have, you shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. And you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And and pour the pour all the blood besides the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails of the fatty lobe attached to the liver of the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. And so there's this, this ceremonial... Um, part that Aaron and his sons would go through and they would put their hands on the bull and the bull would be slaughtered and the blood of the bull, they would take it and they would place it um, on, on his ear and on his thumb and on his big toe. And, and we talked about those things last week. But the, the, the point all the way through this is, again, it's, it's the blood of Jesus Christ. The, the blood of Jesus Christ is what actually the scarlet blood of Jesus Christ what takes our scarlet sins and washes them white as snow. It's the blood. It's the power of the blood. We don't function without the blood. We don't live without the blood. It's the blood. It's the blood. It's the blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that washes me. What can make me white as snow? Come on, worship team. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me white as snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And, and it's the blood. The blood, the blood, the blood. And you're like, that's kind of morbid, right? The guy talks about blood a lot, but it's it's the blood of Jesus Christ that changes my life. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that I need to forgive me and cleanse me daily and change me and, and empower me. And it's it's by the blood and because of the blood and because of the blood that Jesus shed that I go to heaven, that I have relationship with God, that I live in eternity with the Father. And, and that's why we celebrate monthly and multiple times a month. Uh, we take communion and, and we celebrate in remembrance of Jesus and the blood that he shed. And then as we just. Um, as we move on a little bit quicker, highlighting through 29. Um, let's go to number number uh, verse number 33 and 29. It says, and they shall eat those things to which the atonement was made. To consecrate and sanctify them, but an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh of the consecration offerings or the bread remains until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder of it with fire, and it shall not be eaten because it is holy. And in verse 36 it says, And you shall offer a bull every day, and a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it and sanctify it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and sanctify it. And the altar shall be mostly most holy because whatever touches the altar must be holy. And so we have this um, this daily sacrifices. And when you when you started to consider and, and do the math on on the work of the tribe of Levi was astronomical. The amount of work that they would do on a daily basis. God, God devoted um, one twelfth of his people, the entire tribe of Levi, anybody within the tribe of Levi would handle all the priestly duties. And there was tons of work to do. You guys remember um, 
John the Baptist's parents, and it was it was John's the Baptist's father who who was a, a part of the priestly tribe and was was the lot fell on him to go in and and do the priestly duties, and that's where he went in, and the angel met with him there and told him he was going to have a son, and he said, "How is this? My wife is old." And and then he couldn't speak. Remember, he wasn't able to speak until um, until John was born, and he would write on a tablet. And then when he was born, they, he wrote the name. And they said, "What are we going to call him?" And the wife said, "His name's going to be John." And they said, "No, no, his name can't be John." And they came to the husband, and he couldn't speak, and he wrote on a tablet, "His name shall be John." And they're like, and at that point, he began to speak. But he would have been a part of that that tribe of Levi, responsible for all these duties. All right, that brings us to chapter 30. And so in chapter 30, we get the altar of incense. Incense in the Bible is a picture of... Very good. Everybody now. Incense in the Bible is a picture of... Prayer. Write it down. Write it down. Highlight it. Last week, we we learned another one. Brass in the Bible is the, the metal of... Judgment. Brass is the metal of judgment. Incense in the Bible is a is a is a is prayer every time. It's a symbol of prayer. They they literally would light incense here. Throughout the, the, the Bible, the word is used in Psalms and Revelation all the way over that it's an incense that goes up into heaven. And as we pray, you know, and, and even in 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 the world, the, the symbolism of incense that was borrowed really from biblical Christianity is, is the idea that it's, it's going up to the Lord as a prayer. And that's what our prayers are. They're incense to the Lord. And so every time you see incense in the scripture, it's a, it's a picture of prayer. And so here we have the altar of incense. And you shall make an altar to, to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. So the altar of incense is inside the holy place. So there it's pictured as that little thing with the horns on it. It's, it's kind of rectangular in shape. And, and in there is where they would burn the incense. And it has the four horns. The Bible's going to talk about those four horns. I don't know how well you can see that picture. But what it would have sat right at the entrance of the Holy of Holies, this altar of incense, that would, that would be a place where the prayers would go up or would offer literal incense that, that were offered on that place. Now, really quickly, there's um, a couple things here. Oh, there we go. Brian's rocking the altar of incense. Um, So if you let's see the big picture, Brian, can we see the big picture? So we have two um, altars that that are discussed. And this this particular altar is going to be, no, the big, big one where he sees the whole thing. You see the outer courts, too. So you have you have the brazen altar. It's called in there, or the brazen, yeah, the brazen altar, the 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 altar. We studied that in verse twenty-seven, and that's made of bronze. And then bronze is a picture of what? I'm sorry, bronze is a metal of what? Judgment. And then inside we have the other altar, but it's to be made of acacia wood and and covered in in solid gold. And so gold is a picture, and 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 many many of the scholars, and as we look through this picture of Jesus see that 
you know, as you come into Jesus and that, that the, the outer court is judgment, being born again, saved, and then what Jesus has done for us in judgment and, and, um, and then what he's going to do for us or what he does do for us now on the one that's on the inside in gold. Because what does the Bible say Jesus is doing today? Several things. And it's an altar of incense, which is a picture of prayer, and it's covered in gold, so it, it fits. That Jesus today, the Bible says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us, that Jesus is praying for us, that he's interceding on our behalf, that he's in heaven now, and that um, one is, is speaks of, so it's what Jesus has done for us on the outside, what Jesus is currently doing for us, going to do for us on the two altars, the bronze and of gold. And then another way to look at it is the first coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus Christ. And so you can look at it that way as well. When Jesus came and that bronze altar represents the death and judgment that Jesus paid as he came and he died on a cross and he rose again the third day. And the gold represents the king that's coming back in glory with a crown upon his heads and a name written upon his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords. And as Jesus returns in his glory that we're all anticipating and waiting for. Amen. So. This particular one is in the holy place. Now, don't confuse the holy place with the holy of holies. The holy place is the first part, much bigger room than the back little part that was the holy of holies. And you shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width and it shall be square. Two cubits shall be its height and the thorn shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay its top and its sides all around and its horns with pure gold and you shall make it for a molding of gold around two gold rings you shall make it for it under the molding of both sides and you shall place on them its two sides and they will be holders for the poles which will bear it and you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Turn with me very quickly to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we, we get a recorded prayer of Paul. And I didn't mark all these. I had so many, I just didn't get them all marked. I always mark them so I can go right to them. Um, Prayer is something that, that's offered right daily to the Lord. The Bible says, teach us this, you know, teach us. The disciples said, teach us how to pray. And, 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 and Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. And, and so as, as again, prayer as we want to offer prayer. And you know what? One of the things about the prayers of, of the Lord, the prayers of the Bible, you know, the interesting thing about the prayers of the Bible is every one of them recorded in the Bible is short. When Jesus' disciples came to him and said, um, Jesus, we, will you teach us to pray? The, the prayer that he gave was very simple and very short prayer. You know, and I think sometimes we think that we're heard. And Jesus commented on this. He said, we're not heard for our many words or, 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 or boisterous, you know, or going out in the crowds and raising our hands and drawing attention. But it's, it's a matter of the heart and the hidden intent of the heart. And yet so many times the most powerful prayers in the Bible are oftentimes just short to the point. And, and, and it's a matter of the heart. But God wants us to cry out. He says, you have not because you ask not. 
And, and so it's, it, it, you know, I heard an analogy that makes a lot of sense to me personally. That, you know, when your kids come to you on Christmas, why does God say keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking? Why does he want you to repeat prayers? And why does he say to keep praying and, and keep asking for the same things over and over again? And, and why does he want us to continue in prayer and, and fervently in prayer? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The Bible says never cease praising or praying. Now, somebody will take that literally like, well, how do I live if I have to pray 24-7? But it's, it's a call of God to, to be continually in prayer. And, um, you know, again, they're, they're, they're short. They're concise. And the analogy was uh, for my kids. And maybe you guys do this. Your kids come to you and say, hey, you know, they saw a commercial. Hey, I want that new Tyco truck that I just saw on for Christmas. And then they come back the, a week later and they forgot all about that. And they see something else. Hey, I want this for Christmas. And hey, I want this for Christmas. And, and usually what you kind of bring it down to is the things that they've requested multiple times. It's something that now is real to them. And it's and something that, that, that's, that they really want. And it wasn't a whim. And it wasn't just something they saw on TV. But now, you, you know, they've asked a bunch of times and they haven't forgotten. and they've stayed with it. And in that, we can determine really, really what's the, the desire of their heart, what's really important to them. And, and part of just continuing to seek God, continuing to pray, continuing to ask for those same things that God desires for us to do. But I, I just was trying to think of a couple prayers in the Bible that I, I wanted to look at in the idea of prayer. And this one is one of my favorite. I think it's one of the most powerful prayers in the scriptures. But, you know, we studied a couple weeks ago the prayer of Jabez. And again, very short prayer. It's like this long. Very short. Lord, bless me indeed. Enlarge my territories. Help me not to cause pain. Use me. Um, I think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal wailed all day from morning until night. They cut themselves and they, they went on and on and on and on. And, and it came Elijah's turn. And Elijah was about to call down fire from heaven. Excuse me. My heart just stopped. Um, and, and when it came time for Elijah to pray, he didn't have this long wailing on and on, like super pseudo spiritual language that he's. <coughs> Not that time that he spoke with the Lord. He um, he just had a simple prayer. And he just simply asked the Lord and then God sent down fire from heaven and and consumed them. Let's look at one in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. So in verse 15 is a prayer of the Lord, a prayer of Paul. And he says, therefore, I also, after I heard your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And verse 17 begins the prayer. Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your own understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is exceedingly greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, which he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which will come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. You can mark that down. That's a powerful prayer. If you want to pray for me, you can turn to there and you can read that. And that'll be a prayer. You can pray for anybody that way. And, but again, just, just a simple communication uh, of praying and seeking the Lord. So we get this altar of incense. It's a picture of prayer. And then as we go down, let's look at verse number 9. It says, You shall not offer strange incense on it or burnt offerings or a, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour drink offering on it. So God laid out this, this plan that he, he wanted them to follow exactly the, the prescriptions that he laid out for worship and worshiping the Lord. Now later, it says that um, Aaron's sons are going to be judged and God's going to strike them dead, both of them. And the reason is because they offered strange fire. And, and, you know, I think that something to understand, I think something that, that's a lesson in all this that's su- super important is that God accepts the worship that he prescribes. God accepts the worship that he prescribes. What, what is a prevalent thought in society today, in our world today? Oh, it doesn't matter. You worship the Lord how you want, and I worship the Lord how I want. I have people tell me all the time, oh, I just, yeah, I think that God is this way, and I think the way to heaven is this way, and I think if you're just to do it this way, and if you're just a good person, it doesn't matter if you do it different and I do it different, but if you're just, and, and there's all of these these plans of, of, of men that that, everything is okay and just doesn't matter. You know, just search your own heart. You know, what's funny is that same philosophy doesn't carry over to any other part of life, right? But if you go to the doctor and half your face is in paralysis and this is just frozen, the doctor looks at you and he says, you know, whatever works for you, you just go home and you just find it in your heart what's best and however to just heal yourself. Just go home and just contemplate on your heart. I mean, and, and yet, the, whatever, you know, it's, it, it, nothing goes. Like, there's a certain prescription that fits that problem and, and that's not accepted in any other realm of, of the world except for in spirituality, that, that anything goes in spirituality. It tells us in Proverbs, in 14, it tells us in the book of Judges, the last verse in the book of Judges in many places, that there is a way that seems right to man, and its end thereof is, anybody know? Death. There, end thereof is death. There is a way that seems right to man, but it's in there is of his death. So, so the point being that we, we don't get to just decide how we feel about God. You know, I tease people when they tell me this and I'm like, did you roll out of bed and like bump your head on a rock and then had that idea when you when you came to? Oh, I think God's like this. Like, where does it come from? That's that's the neat thing about about studying the Bible and knowing the Bible and having the word of God. Because at least we can say, and if somebody asks, or at least we know what we believe and, and where it comes from. And it doesn't have to come from some philosophy that I made up or some thought that I had or some experience or some experience. It comes from the Word of God. And if it doesn't agree with the Word of God, then my thoughts, my ideas, they need to change until they do, until they follow what the Word of God says. And we have a prescription laid out in the Word that God has called us to, to worship Him with. So you can't say, I'm sorry, you can't say, oh, well, I, yeah, but I just do it this way. But God hasn't called you to do it that way, nor is he going to honor it, nor is he going to bless it. We get an example in John chapter 4. Let's, let's look at the story real quick. It's a good one. It's worth turning to. In John chapter 4, along this idea, and we're talking about that God, he accepts the worship that he prescribes, right? Somebody say accepts prescribes. Okay. So in John chapter four, 
We get this really cool story. We'll begin at verse number four. And it says that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Love that verse in the Bible. Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Why did he must needs go through Samaria? Because first of all, God had an appointment for Jesus in Samaria with a woman at a well. And the Holy Spirit was directing Jesus to do it. And he had a divine, what we call a divine appointment. God had already something pre-laid out for him to do in Samaria. And he must needs go through Samaria. There was a reason that God had for him to go through that place. And he goes through there and he finds a woman at the well around noon. Now, obviously, nobody drew water to this day in any culture where women still go to wells and draw water, which happens. It never happens at noon. It happens early, early in the morning, late, late at night. Same time you shoot a deer or an elk. Early in the morning or in the night when they're going to water. Same thing. We're no different. Not at noon. The reason why she went to the well at noon was because she didn't get along with the other ladies. She had five husbands already, and the one she was with now wasn't currently her husband. Some of the ladies around the well, I'm sure, had reason, good reason not, not to care for this girl much. She was promiscuous. She was a Samaritan. Samaritans were half Jews. They were a, a, a race of people that were half Jew, half Gentile. And they were Jews that intermarried with a Gentile, and they had, they had, had children. And this race was not accepted by the Jews because they were only half Jewish. And so they were called Samaritans. And the, and the Jews um, hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews and they would never recognize them. And Jesus had to go out of his way where he was going to go into this place called Samaria. And the route, the straight line from where he was to where he was headed didn't go through Samaria. But yet Jesus must needs go through Samaria. So he goes through Samaria and it says that um, Jacob's well was there. Let's look at verse 9. And the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well to drink from itself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become for him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> Wise woman, huh? Our fathers worshipped on... And this is what she says, and this is why we're here. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say worship... On this mountain, and you Jews say worship in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And so the Samaritans, who, who knew 
that the prescribe and the prescription that God laid out was definitely to worship in Jerusalem and attend the temple in Jerusalem. But because the Samaritans weren't welcomed and, and things were different and, and things were a problem, they had just come up with their own ideas, their own prescription of how they would worship and how they would connect with God. And so she challenges Jesus on this exact question. The Jews say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans say that we're supposed to worship on this mountain. And then Jesus said to her. Verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We know that we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And and this is our prescription today for worship that God has laid out that we worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. And so again, that's that that's the main thing that Jesus taught us about worship through the New Testament is that it's in spirit and in truth. And so, again, there's no prescription for certain styles or stand up, sit down, all that other stuff, music choices. It's a matter of the heart, but that the prescription that God laid out is the way that we're supposed to worship and that worship is in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such who worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he one of the places where Jesus plainly says that he is God, that he is Messiah, and claims to be the Messiah. I who speak to you am he. So we're in verse number 10. We're back in Exodus 30. And it says, And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it through your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The word atonement is something that Aaron was doing. He was making atonement. Now, atonement is a is a word that um, is important for each one of us. And the word atonement, if you break down and break apart the actual word, it helps us understand what atonement means. Atonement starts with at at one mint at one mint or at one with. If you want to be at one with God, you have to make atonement. The Hebrew word for atonement is, is Kippur. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Is there a holiday that, that, that the Jews celebrate, a major holiday they celebrate every year called Yom Kippur? And during Yom Kippur or in the Day of Atonement, um, the, this is the one day of year that the Jews are to make things right. Now, today, the Jews that, that live in, in Jerusalem and around the world today... They, they celebrate Yom Kippur and it's, it's a day of atonement. It's a day of reckoning. And they still have a, a mentality that it's a scale system. And as long as your, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds for the year, then you did good. And, um, and, and they have a problem following these because there is no shedding of blood. There is no animal sacrifices that the Bible prescribes through all of these ceremonies to, to make atonement or to make one with or to get one with God or make right with God. And, and so they have modern stuff that they that they justify and and really tweak i always tease and i say if you have any jewish friends just before yom kippur go ask them to borrow money 
Because they, they, they're trying to make their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds for the year. And so if you need to borrow some money from one of your Jewish friends, do it around Yom Kippur. Just before Yom Kippur. Probably your, they're trying to be on their best behavior to get through the end of the year to, to Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement. So they might want to. But the, the idea of Yom Kippur is to cover one's sins. Make atonement for. So the blood of bulls, the Bible says, and the blood of rams was only good enough to cover ceremonially through the tabernacle and these ceremonies, it covered the sins. But only, only one thing washes the sins away, right? That's what? The blood of Jesus. Only one thing is what makes me white as snow. That's the blood of Jesus. So, the, the, again, the idea is if we, if we have a stain on the wall, in the Old Testament, we just took another coat of paint and we covered it. Right? And that's what the blood of the bulls and the blood of the rams did. It covered the sins so we wouldn't see it. But, but what, what Jesus does differently is he doesn't just cover it with another coat of paint because it belongs there, but he removes it. And the blood of Jesus Christ washes our sins from our lives, puts them as far as the east is from the west. And, and before Jesus died on the cross, nobody went to heaven. They went to a place called Abraham's bosom or a temporary place of paradise for this very reason. They were there and they were saved. They were, they were born again. Their sins had been atoned for, but only covered and it wasn't until Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood. And that's why it says before he ascended or went up, he first descended and set captivity free. And at that point, the Abraham's bosom or the one side of Abraham's bosom that was paradise side was released and they were um, allowed to go to heaven. And, and today on this side of the cross, because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses and doesn't cover our sins to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I saw this article on, uh, I don't know why this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I, I saw this article on uh, Facebook, I guess was where I read it. Someone posted it. And basically it was this whole like thing saying that when you die, you don't go to heaven. Like you just kind of stop for a while. And not that there was no heaven, but that, that you don't. And, and I'm reading through it and people are like, talking about it and i'm like where do you get this stuff like one verse kind of does does the whole thing away to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord it says in second corinthians chapter five to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord and yet the, the whole this whole article was to be absent from the body wasn't to be that you you died and then there was a resurrection but everybody would go up at the same time and it'd be later and just weird stuff and it's like how do you come up with this stuff can you just read the New Testament? Just read the Bible. It'll, it'll, it'll take care of this stuff very quickly. And nobody comes up with this stuff. All the people that were on there and that were proponents of it, I'm like, there's no way you got that on your own. You didn't get that from reading the Bible. You had to go and get some extra source or somebody else that, that told you and tells you this stuff. All right, chapter um, 30, verse 11. I did say we're going to finish 31 tonight by 8.15, didn't I? Okay, 8.20. Um, but we are. The... 31 is short and easy. And we'll, we'll go through here quick. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 11, Exodus 30, 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take the census, the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Now, what does he mean that there be no plague among them when you number them? Well, God told the people of Israel, that they were not to number the people. It's so weird. 
because of this, now, do you guys remember who messed it up? Who messed it up? Who counted the people? King David. King David had did a, he counted the people, and God judged him. And I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but it was like 30,000 people died as a result of David's sin. Because God told, told the kings and told the nation of Israel they were not to number the people. When you go to Israel today, they will not number people for anything. If they have to number people and they're in a game like on the childhood playground and they're, they're trying to number the kids to split them up in teams, the coach will say, you're not one, you're not two, you're not three, you're not four, you're not five, because there's a way around everything in Israel as well. But they, they will not, according to God's law, they won't number the people because God told them not to number the people. So did they ever number the people? Yes, they did. Where? You go to the book of Numbers. And what do you find in the book of Numbers? You find that God is numbering the people, that God is counting and, and giving a census to the people. So for whatever reason, it would seem biblically that God reserved the right to number the people um, unto himself and that he didn't want his people to number the people. And the whole reason why it was um, God wanted basically the bottom line is God wanted us. He wanted David. He wants his people to trust him and not in chariots and horses, the Bible says. And so for David to count his men, he knew how many men he could go to war with. To count his people, he knew how many people were in his kingdom. And, and both were an area of pride and of arrogance. And both were an area or numbers that he would look at in making decisions. Well, we got to go, go fight these people. Well, we have so many thousands of soldiers that can fight. We have so many men that are over the age of 20. We have so many women. We have this. We have that. And, 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 he, and you look at those numbers in your life and in my life to make decisions. But God didn't want King David or any other people of Israel looking at those numbers to make decisions. He wanted them to trust in him. And he didn't want them also to glory in those numbers because that was his glory. So God doesn't allow, he's going to judge King David very harshly, as I might add, for breaking this commandment or the commandment of numbering the people. But God laid out a practical way that they could get a number without numbering the people. He allowed him to do it um, actually once a year without numbering and it's this thing that we call it a, a temple tax so it says in verse 13 this is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give a half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary a shekel is 20 gerahs the half shekel shall be an offering to the lord this would be a great trivia question in genesis chapter 30 for the temple tax they were they were called to give a certain amount how much was it anybody know I just told you half a shekel, half a shekel. So each one was to give half a shekel. And then by that, they could do what? They could count the shekels and they could see how many people they had. They could basically take a sentence to census without numbering the people. And it says everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years and old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. So to bring it into to perspective, to little New Testament in Matthew chapter 17. Do you guys remember we, we have those two guys and they, they come to Peter and they say, hey, does Jesus pay temple tax or not? And this is where it comes from. This is where it was started. This is where God gave it to Moses to put in the Mosaic law. And Jesus was questioned or Peter was questioned in the New Testament about does Jesus 
follow this law and pay his temple tax every year. So Peter comes to Jesus and he says, hey, yo, Jesus, the IRS is here, man. They want to know if you're going to pay your taxes. And so Jesus told Peter to go down to the Sea of Galilee and catch a fish. And in the mouth of the fish, he would find enough to pay Jesus's temple tax and Peter's. Good friend to have around, right? Go catch a fish. There'll be enough money in the mouth of the fish to pay your tax and mine. So sure enough, Peter goes down to the sea. I don't know how he caught it. He he whistled and it swam up to him and he picked it up. And he opened the mouth of the fish in Matthew chapter 17. And sure enough, that fish had swallowed some money somehow and the exact amount that they needed. And Peter went and paid that temple tax. And then the last thing here, this little highlight here, is that it says everybody that was 20 years and older was to pay it. Do you remember another time where God made a line in the sand at 20 years older and younger? What about when um, the people of the nation of Israel that left Egypt were not allowed to enter the, 20, the promised land? God said anybody who's 20 years old and older will not enter the promised land. So if you were 19 and three quarters, you, you were grandfathered in. And when anybody who was 20 and above died, then that next generation is actually the one that, that, that Joshua led into the promised land. Some have, have said that to mean that this is the age of accountability. It's a question we get often. What is the age of accountability? Well, here we have two, two occasions in the Bible where 20 years old is an age of accountability. You know, we have like in, in Jewish culture today, they bar mitzvah the, the, young, the young people at age 13. Um, Jesus went to the temple, the Bible records, when he was age 12. And so um, to me, 20 sounds old, but who knows? You know, you know why Jesus lived a very humble life as a carpenter to normal life until he was 30 years old because he had to follow the, the Mosaic law perfectly and keep it in order to fulfill his call of living a sinless life. And you could not become a rabbi until you were 30 years old. So here we have in the United States, we have the idea that you become adult at either 18 or 21. Well, in Jewish culture, the age was actually 30, and it's probably more proper that at 30 years old, you become more of an adult. But so, so the age of accountability basically is at a child who doesn't able, is not able to discern right and wrong, is not maybe um, um, mentally, emotionally, whatever, old enough to really understand heaven and hell and salvation. Um, if they die before the age of accountability, do they automatically go to heaven? And what is that age? And, um, you know, and then the term age of accountability, the Bible really doesn't even use that idea. But um, there is the idea that because we believe that children who die innocently and young do go to heaven, or I do anyways, um, that, that, yeah, it's, but at some point adults who die, they, they've had a choice now. And they don't automatically go to heaven. They'll go to heaven or hell based on the decisions they made in their life. Based on what they did with Jesus. So when did that change? That's what the age accountability is. From an innocent child who's, who's grandfathered in to an adult who's not. And then as they grew, they reached that age. And so I, I, would, I would personally just think that, you know, number one, God is good. God's not going to judge anybody unfairly. Everybody's going to get a fair shake. I, I don't necessarily think it's a birthday like when you hit this birthday, you've reached the age accountability. I would more see it as a, as a maturity and understanding, an ability to choose. And, and to me, somebody much younger can make a decision or not decision for Christ um, than, than that age. And so, but anyways, neither here nor there. The Bible doesn't really say anyway, so I'm not teaching that it is 
one or the other. We are not moving very fast. Not as fast as I promised we would. As you guys could tell, I'm not feeling great tonight, so I was going to let you guys out of here a little early. Um, all right, the next one is the bronze laver. So the bronze laver is something that um, was for ceremonially washing, 17 to 21. I think there's just a little interesting, uh, it doesn't give us any dimensions. A little interesting tidbit here on the bronze laver. But the point is that the, the priests had to ceremonially wash. They had to, to physically wash. And, and it was a place where, where the priests would again wash after they washed, to wash, to wash, and covered in blood, and did all the things that were called through the ceremonies. This is a bronze um, a laver that was outside. As they went in, the last thing God prescribed in this that they would that they would um, wash. What's interesting is that it doesn't give any dimensions really for this. And so when Solomon built the temple, in Solomon's temple, and it's interesting for us because it's it's close enough. He he built Solomon built the one and he built it that would hold um, two thousand gallons of water, and it was ginormous, and he built it upon the backs of twelve oxen. Um, three, six, nine, twelve, three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west, and that's the model that they've used in Salt Lake. Although the brazen or this this labor was a thing of washing, it had nothing to do with baptism. But Solomon did build this bronze, bronze laver that's prescribed here. And, and Solomon just went nuts and went overboard. And so they call it the molten sea in Solomon's temple. And it was ginormous and it was built on the back of 12 oxen. And then in um, verse 22, we have, which is to me, a uh, it's a cool addition to the whole thing. Because one of the things that I've been kind of asking as we go through this is... Where is the Holy Spirit represented in all this? You know, we see Jesus, 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 Jesus. But obviously the Holy Spirit is a huge part of, of living and, and walking this faith. And the interesting thing about the ministry of the Holy Spirit is every time you come to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is constantly pointing us back to Jesus. And, and he, that's the job of the Holy Spirit, even as the Holy Spirit lives today. It says that his job is convicting us of sin and pointing us to Jesus and pointing us back to Jesus. And then as the Holy Spirit directs us to Jesus and we get to Jesus, where is Jesus pointing us? To the Father. That's the progression. And Jesus is constantly pointing us to the Father. Don't you know I must be about my Father's business? The Father, the Father, the Father. And so the fact that the Holy Spirit, through most of the, of the Old Testament, remains kind of a back seat, kind of a little more um, humble role, as we as we really highlight Jesus, 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 as it should be all the way through these 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 things, we do get a place. We get multiple places where we see a function and the function of the Holy Spirit. So in the Bible, um, bronze is the judgment of judgment. We learn that In, incense is a picture of prayer, and anointing oil is a picture of the that guy. That's my picture of the Holy Spirit, not anointing oil. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so um, when we when we anoint with oil, if you guys have ever seen me anoint somebody with oil, I'll make a shape of a cross and um, and, and I often tell them that biblically the anoint, the anointing oil is a reminder of God's Holy Spirit that is with us. And so here we get this picture of the Holy Spirit and the and the process of the anointing oil. Um, what, what's interesting, I saw this thing recently where 
um, they're bringing back these, some of these bushes are non-existent. Most of these oils and spices that you're going to see and all the oils that represent the Holy Spirit, coincidentally in, uh, verse number 34 are sweet spices. I think that's in there for a reason that that anointing of the Holy Spirit is sweet. And that as it lives out in your life, that it's sweet. And if you do something that you say is of the spirit and it's in a spirit of bitterness or a spirit of any of anger or anything else other than sweetness, I would say that it's not of the Holy Spirit. But we get we get these pictures and, and, and um, in verse 23, it says there to come the myrrh, the smelling cinnamon and these bushes that they come from, that all of these these spices, um, they're, they're, they come from bushes that, are, that grow in the desert. And it's the sap, and they make these oils and, and the frankincense and myrrh and all that stuff that was made is made from the, the sap of these shrubs and bushes that grow in the Holy Land. For a long time, they were gone, and they couldn't, they couldn't reproduce a lot of these things. Um, but recently, there's a farmer in Israel, and he, he's growing these ancient bushes, and he has a bunch of them now, and he's, he's growing, and his farm is growing. And he's, he's doing it for the purpose of providing the oils and spices that they will use in the rebuilt Jewish temple and for the Temple Mount Society. So you can check that story out if it interests you. <clears throat> and then in verse 34, the, we had the oil. And verse 35 is a prescription for the incense that will be burned on the altar of incense. <clears throat> also are things that come from plants. Hey, in verse 33 and in verse 38, let's look at 33 first. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it into an outsider shall be cut off from his temple. And in verse 38, it says, whoever makes any like it to smell, he shall he shall be cut off from his people. So there was um, a prescription for God in both of these things, in the anointing oil and in the in the incense that you weren't to take them home for yourself. The regular people were not to reproduce them in their home according to the prescription that God laid out, that they were to be holy, anointed and set apart unto the Lord. And so the, the term holy, it just means set apart. Somebody asked if the if the water in the in the in the labor was holy water. And I said, absolutely. But, you know, it, it's not maybe holy water in the way that you would expect or the holy water as as the Roman Catholic Church would depict what holy water is. But it was meant only for the priests and it was meant specifically to be set apart because the word holy just means set apart. You're holy. You're, you're, you're set apart. We just read in, in, in Peter where God calls you a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And many, many times in the Bible it says, be holy for I am holy. And, and, and the term holiness is just set apart once to be set apart for the Lord. And so these things were to be set apart. They weren't be to reproduce. They weren't be to be taken home. And, and sanctified for the Lord. Amen? All right. Chapter um, 31, we can do quick, so we'll do it next week. Love chapter 31. I like the ideas in it. We're again going to see the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and the difference between the Holy Spirit and the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'll just say, going into next week, and then we'll get to 32. Moses is going to come back down off the calf. Chapter 33 is hard-hitting, so we'll just try to do 32 and 33 next week. We'll cover 31 quickly next week and then do 32 and 33. Um, But it appears that in the Old Testament, we don't have a function of the Holy Spirit as we do in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, and Jesus said, if I'm going 
And, and if, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will send to you a comforter or a helper. And so Jesus is, he said, I have to go, but I'll send to you a comforter or a helper. So, so Jesus in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon the church of Pentecost. And so we get this, this New Testament, this new function of the Holy Spirit that you and I live in, where the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. The Bible says in the New Testament that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, we, we don't see in God's people, and we don't see that function of the Holy Spirit present in the Old Testament, where God filled His people permanently, daily with the Holy Spirit, where they were empowered and had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a new function that after Jesus died on the cross and rose again and sent the Holy Spirit that we experience. But what we see um, is, is almost like the, the Holy Spirit comes upon people for a time. He empowers people. He gifts people. But, but a different function from the Old to the New Testament of the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. So that's what we'll see in 31 next week. Amen?